0: Thank you, worship team. Good morning, New Hope. Good to see you all. Welcome. I'm Ryan. If we haven't met, one of the pastors, and uh, there is a lot going on, isn't there? A lot of exciting things happening. I mean, between uh, uh, what's happening on uh, this coming Saturday with Wings of Refuge and the marriage event coming up, and having Pastor Joy here, and I don't know about you, but to to see the playground and see the kids on the playground, and and VBS can feel like that was so long ago, back in July, August time, and. And uh, But to see the fruit of that is so encouraging. So I hope, I hope you're encouraged this morning uh, with that. Hey, if uh, you would, grab your Bibles, please. Turn to the Gospel of John is where we're going to be. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you, And uh, right after this service, we're going to be having our business meeting. I know it doesn't sound like super fun, but I promise you two things. It will be short and it will be sweet, and we will keep it moving. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the potential building project. That's most of the time, giving some important updates and uh, some new members, and, uh, and then we'll be wrapping up. So if you can stick around, please, I encourage you to do so. Uh, stick around for, for that time. So again, John chapter six is where we're at. We're going through the Gospel of John, uh, moving verse by verse through the book. And remember, too, we also have the corresponding devotional guide. And so uh, I, I love seeing you guys come in. So many of you coming in with your devotionals and taking notes in the devotional, uh, using it during the week. So great job! Keep going. This is we're now uh, officially a third of the way through the series. So what happens is you start off, everybody's like woohoo, we're so excited and we have all this enthusiasm and excitement. And then we get about a third of the way through and we just start to kind of lose some of that. So I want to encourage you to keep going, keep using that devotional, using it during the week, obviously catching the sermons on Sunday or you can catch it online, the, the website if you miss it. But, uh, but staying engaged, God is working and he's doing some great things through the Gospel of John in us and, and in you and through you as well. So, so we can t- continue on. Today's story that we're going to be looking at is, is one of the most loved It's one of the most famous stories of Jesus' life. In fact, it's one of the few accounts that is told from Jesus' life that is told in all four of the Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of only two miracles that Jesus did that's talked about in every single Gospel as well. It's this account this morning we're going to look at. The other is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus. And so this is, this is uh, again, a famous passage. It's one that most of you are going to be uh, somewhat familiar with. It's one that I hope is an encouragement to you. We're going to be talking this morning about the feeding of the 5,000. And so, again, John chapter 6 is where we're going to be there. Now, the Bible is an interesting thing. The Bible, it's, it's, it's one book, but it's actually 66 books compiled together. And we have Old Testament and we have New Testament, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New. And the Bible is, is, is unique in that there's one author, the Holy Spirit, that supervenes over all of it. And all of it ties together with one common purpose and theme. And the common purpose and theme of all the Bible is Jesus. It all comes back to him. It's all about him. It's all promoting him. It's all zeroing in on the person, nature, work of who Jesus is. And the way that, that God accomplishes that is that he has some different themes that he weaves through Scripture. And so what this means is that every command in the Bible, everything that God says and everything that he does, Old and New Testament, point back to Jesus. And through these themes, it helps us to understand our need for Jesus. Now, if you have a bulletin on the back side, and I hope this is just a Bible reading tip for you, but I want to highlight these different themes that bring us back to Jesus. Here's the first one. It's that parts of the Bible deal with sin, your sin and my sin. It's the the reality that all of us have violated God's command. We've all gone our own way. We've all turned our back on him. And as a result, we experience brokenness. And we experience it in our lives and we see it around us, in the world around us. And, And the Bible highlights almost like a mirror the reality of our sin, of our shortcomings, of the ways that we've turned our back on him. And it presents to us the reality of our need for a savior that we need to be rescued, and that Jesus is God's provision, God's Savior, God's rescuer. And so parts of the Bible deal with sin to help us understand our need for a Savior. Other parts of the Bible deal with, another theme, is suffering. That as a result of sin, that I don't have to convince you of this, life is hard, isn't it? Life is challenging, and we suffer, and we go through seasons and pockets of life that hurt. And we recognize that through all of that, that we we, we need God's comfort, and we need God's peace. And, and, and the Lord provides Jesus as, as that, that he provides us that, that peace and that comfort in our lives, that we turn to him and that we need him for this. And then finally, we have parts of the Bible deal with stewardship. And stewardship has to deal with our relationship to all the stuff and things in our lives. That we're the manager, God's the owner. And this dynamic here, these types of passages in the Bible, events and teaching passages, all bring us back to one key question. It's the question of this, will you trust him? Will you have faith in him to provide, to come through, to meet your needs, to be there when you need him? And it brings us back to the reality that we need God, we need Jesus as our provider. We need a savior, we need a comforter, and we need a provider. And that Jesus is every single one of those. Now this morning our passage that we're going to be looking at is a stewardship passage. It's going to be one that's going to push us to grow in the area of faith. It's going to push us to grow in the area of am I going to trust God in my life, with the details of my life, and so hopefully you're there now in John chapter six, uh, if not youVersion.com can help as well as a table of contents, but John chapter six, starting in verse one, let's go ahead and read together our account this morning. It says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of, uh, of Tiberias. Now we're talking about the same body of water. The Sea of Galilee is the legal name. The Sea of Tiberias was the locals name. that's how they referred to it. Verse 2, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he, Jesus, had performed by healing the sick. And so up to this point, we know that Jesus, he he turned water into wine. You probably remember that from chapter 2. And then chapters 3, 4, and 5, we've been seeing Jesus do some teaching, but he's also been doing miracles. He's been healing people. And if you can turn water into wine and you can heal people, you're going to have a lot of friends. And this is what's going on here. Jesus is popular. Jesus has massive crowds. In this stage in his ministry, I mean, not just dozens, not even just hundreds, thousands of people were following him, were showing up where he showed up. They were pursuing him. He is at the pinnacle of, of his popularity, if you will, during his three-year ministry at this time. And so we have these large crowds, as we're going to see, that are following him. Verse 3. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside. And he sat down with his disciples. Now that was what a rabbi would do. That was a posture of teaching. And so he's, he's there with his disciples. He, Jesus sits down on this mountainside. And he's about to teach them. The disciples have no idea the lesson they're about to get. But here's the setting. Jesus is teaching them on the mountainside. And it says the Jewish uh, Passover festival... Was near. Now just to help us visualize what's going on here, I want to show us a map here of where we're at and what's going on. You're standing looking at this picture from the south. You're looking north at the Sea of Galilee. If you look about 1 o'clock, you'll see a community named Bethsaida. And just to the right of that, as the arrow's highlighting, you've got that circled area. That's approximately where this scene is taking place. You notice the contours of the geography. It's definitely hilly. Jesus is somewhere up on that hillside. As we're about to see, crowds are going to be ascending on this on this, this hillside to where Jesus is at in just a moment. But this is real history. This is a real place that took place in a real location. Verse 5, we'll keep going. When Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for, those, for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And now I want you to do something with me. I want you to just imagine with me. Close your eyes if you need to, or, or if you're going to fall asleep, don't do that. But just imagine with me, you're with your small group. And or just a group of friends, and you're out here on the church lawn. You're, I don't know, you're picnicking, or this time of year building a snowman. You're just out there, you're you're doing stuff, and you look up the hill, and coming up Hickman is is a crowd of people. And not just any crowd. I want you to imagine that the entire population of Adele has come together and they are walking up the hillside to you. Elicits a little bit of anxiety, maybe. There's a lot of people coming. and And they want to be taught and they want to be healed, and they want to be fed. And this crowd is coming up the hill, except our crowd is too small. So not only the entire population of Adele, if you could try to imagine what that is, take Sweet Corn, I don't whatever you got to imagine, and there's the crowd. And I want you to add to this crowd the entire population of Redfield, the entire population of DeSoto, the entire population of Van Meter. Let's throw in Dallas Center and Minburn. Everybody coming together in one crowd walking up the hill to you. That's what's going on. Jesus there sitting down on this mountainside teaching the people. The crowd is coming up. The disciples are like, "Uh, uh, there's a lot of people coming. And Jesus, you notice something? He's completely calm, nothing's rattled him. He's very intentional. And what he's about to do here, especially as he as he calls out uh, of Philip, now what we're going to read in a moment, just so you know, I'm not exaggerating, is that it says we're going to read in a moment it says that five thousand men were in this crowd, but same event told by Matthew, Matthew chapter fourteen verse twenty one says there was men and there were women and children, so you add that whole crowd together. Of course, we don't know what the crowd size is, but it would be reasonable to say between ten and fifteen thousand people. Are coming up, when we saw that map, coming up that hillside to where Jesus is at. This is quite the scene that's happening. And Jesus, again, no panic, very intentional. He leans over to Philip. How are we going to get the money? How are we going to feed this crowd of people? Knew exactly what he was going to be doing. Now, why Philip? Why did he lean to Philip? And eh, we don't know. Maybe there was something going on for Philip that, that Jesus wanted to teach him something. We also know that Bethsaida, that community right by that circle that you saw, Bethsaida, that's where Philip grew up. That's his hometown. This is his neighborhood. So if anybody of the disciples had connections, you know, knew where the local Costco was, like Philip is the guy. And so maybe he turns to Philip for that reason because, hey, this is your area. How are we going to pull this off? How are we going to feed all these people? And so the text continues, verse 7. Philip answered him. It would take more than half a year's wages. Maybe your translation says eight months wages. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And so you could, you could almost see the, 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 the wheels grinding in Philip's mind. He's trying to figure out how to do this. I mean, he, he's looking at the crowd. He's trying to figure out how, how are we going to feed them. And maybe some of you, in fact, I'm sure some of you are like Philip. You, you love budgets. You love spreadsheets. Uh, you love the fill in the blanks on the sermon notes. And if I skip one, you have like, anxiety. You start to sweat a little bit, like we skipped a fill in the blank, right? And so you're, you're organized that way. And Philip seems to have some of this because it's almost like he's trying to figure this out. Okay, you know, like there's that many people, and if everybody gets one pizza slice, well, that's not gonna work. How about you know, pepperoni slice? We'll just cut it even smaller. How how small of a portion can we feed the crowd? And he's he's trying to figure out where if there's that many people and and do we have the money? No, because Judas, who takes care of the money, keeps stealing our money, so we don't have enough money, you know, we can't pay them. And, And if I go down to Tim at Lincoln Bank, he's not gonna give us a loan. We don't have any credit. So like he's trying to he's trying to figure this out. Like, how do we solve this problem? how do we come up with the money finally turns to jesus and says you know sorry can't do it now look budgets are not the problem families have budgets churches have budgets here's the problem next slide the problem is this philip ran the numbers without god he ran the numbers Without God, he, he, he took the question, he took the problem, how do, we, how do we feed this crowd, and he tried to figure out how he could solve the problem. And don't you and I do this all the time? We do the exact same thing. Things happen in our lives and we, and we, we, we just, almost like we're default. We go back to this scenario where we just try to figure out, Lord, you don't even say Lord, we just like, okay, how do I solve this financial dilemma? How do I pay this bill? How do I meet this need? How do I do this and get the car running? And we try to get all this stuff, but we never take the problem to the Lord. And Philip here, we see him. Now remember, Philip was there, he was there when the water was turned to wine. He was there for all the healings. He's seen everything all along the way. But it was almost like in this moment he forgot. He just forgot. And he didn't take it to the Lord. He tried to solve the problem by himself. See, Philip couldn't solve this problem. And there are things in your life and in my life that on our own, we just can't solve the problem. And way too often we... Take the anxiety and the pressure and the effort to try to solve the problem all by ourselves and we don't come back to the Lord and say, Lord, this is way bigger than me. I I need you to take this one because it's not going to happen otherwise. Philip ran the numbers without God. Let's keep going in verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother spoke up. He said, here's a boy with five small uh, small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. So we've already had Philip kind of have his encounter with Jesus. Then we have Andrew comes, and he comes to Jesus with an option. He's like, hey, Jesus, I found this little boy with a Lunchable. Like, I don't know if it's going to solve the problem. In fact, I'm sure it's not, but here is, here's something And so whether Andrew realized it or not, he at least brings Jesus a person and resources. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, what do we know about this boy? I mean, not much. We don't know his name. Uh, We don't know where his mother is. That's a common question that comes up. Like, where is this boy's mother? But here he is. He's in the crowd. He's obviously there on the early side. And because he's close to where the disciples are and where Jesus is, he gets presented to Jesus. And he's got this small, very humble lunch of barley, loaves, and fish. And this might have been his lunch and his dinner, maybe even food for the next day. We know that he was probably poor. He was probably a peasant boy because barley at that time was actually food for animals. But if he didn't have a lot, you would supplement your diet and you would also eat barley. And so because this was barley bread, loaves, this was a very humble, poor person's meal. It could have fed maybe two, maybe three people if you stretched it. And so Andrew brings this boy and this lunch to Jesus. And, and I don't know if Andrew was being serious or if Andrew was being ridiculous to try to make a point. But regardless, Jesus has something to work with. And the boy is there and the lunch is there. Verse 11 Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks. And he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the, with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. This is a familiar story, again, for so many. But don't, don't let the familiarity rob you of the marvel of the moment. The miracle that Jesus... He just, he just fed a sports arena with a Happy Meal. He just did something that is impossible, this incredible, miraculous moment. But to help it be not something that just resides in history, but to connect to our lives, I want to give a couple observations this morning for us. Like, what, what do we do with something like this to connect to our lives? So two observations. If you have your, again, bulletin, your next fill in the blank, here's the first one, it's this is that gratitude, this story reminds us and teaches us that gratitude is powerful. Gratitude is powerful. Now Jesus just performed an amazing miracle, but let me ask you a question. Was this an amazing meal? The answer is no. Incredible miracle, but not an incredible meal. Remember, this was a humble meal. This was a poor person's meal. This, this, was, this was peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, not Jimmy John subs, right? This is this is something that's not fancy. But Jesus takes this humble meal, and he before his father thanks him for it, breaks it, and then distributes it among the people with gratitude. Happy to share this humble meal. Think about it this way: Jesus, who turned water into wine, who was King of kings and Lord of Lords, would it have been anything for him? to make it a better meal? Would it have been anything for him to say, I got the barley loaves and I got the fish, but we're going to turn that into T-bone and baked potato? I don't know. We're going to up the game here, and we're going to make it a better meal. Not just more food, but better. He didn't do that. And instead, he modeled gratitude for what he had. A little boy's lunch. He thanked God for it. Here's why this is so important, your next fill in the blank, is that gratitude is an antidote to entitlement. And if we're not careful, any of us and every, all of us, we can slip into modes of feeling entitled. You know what this is like, and so do I. This idea of, of, of more and more and more that the culture teaches us, whether it's, it's more horsepower, more income, more square footage, this discontent that we can feel at times. You know the mantra of culture? You deserve. You deserve more. You deserve better. And sometimes we can fall into that. And so I just want to ask a question. Be honest with yourself. Do you feel discontent with what God has provided in your life? You know how it works and so do I. We we can do that and then we look around at somebody else and we compare. We say, well, I'm blessed, but I'm not as blessed as they're blessed. And I just, now I felt content and now I feel discontent because that commercial told me I'm not, shouldn't be content. And my neighbor has this and I want that. And I see that you just, it can grow. Do you feel contentment with what God has provided? Instead, a different way? Are you the kind of person that you always tend to see the hole in the donut versus the reality that God has provided a donut? You know how those people are and how it works where it's like, it's like yeah, God's provided, but I always drift to the negative. I always drift to what's missing. I always drift to what's not as good. And we forget to live a life of gratitude gratitude, being thankful, and practicing that wars against the entitlement that can set in in any single one of our hearts. See, this is practical. This is something that you and I can apply today to catch ourselves, even this week as we're going about and we find ourselves complaining about this or mumbling about that. Complaining is not a spiritual gift, okay? And so it's, it's, we just have to catch ourselves and say, you know what, no, I'm going to be thankful. I want to be thankful. So that's the first one. Here's the second is that God can multiply what you give Him. God can multiply what you give Him. You ever experienced this before? You ever experienced the feeling of talking yourself out of giving to God? whether you're talking about finances or of your time or of your life, you, you talk yourselves out of giving to God because you feel like what you have to give, it's not very much. It doesn't seem very good. And so we talk ourselves out of it. And we say things like, well, when I'm in such and such a place in life or when I've earned X amount of dollars or when I've done this, and we, we kind of create this elusive end zone that just keeps moving on us. And then I'll be able to give and then I can do something. You know what this story models for us? It models for us a little boy who brings a humble meal, which is what he has, and he offers it to Jesus. And Jesus takes that and does something miraculous with it. I, I mean, let's think for a second about this little boy. Th- th- think about what that, that day was like. Can you imagine the joy that that little boy experienced as he sat there and watched his two fish and five little loaves feed ten to 15,000 people. I bet he was giggling. I mean, I bet he was just in awe, like, are you serious? I'm looking around like, that was my lunch. You, and you just know, too, that we don't know anything about this guy or how long he lived, but to the day he died, you know he remembered this story. You you know he told his kids and his grandkids and, and anybody else who would listen to him. I mean, can I tell you the most incredible story about what Jesus did? I brought this lunch, and then he did whatever he did, and all of a sudden to thail his people, he did the miraculous. He multiplied what little I had to give to him. But here was the key: the boy had to give up his lunch first. He's poor. He doesn't have a credit card in his back pocket where he can just go swipe it and get something else. He, he, there's not the, there, there wasn't plan B. That was his food, and he gave it to Jesus. He said, this is for you. He had to let go of it first. He had to offer it up, step away, and then Jesus took it and did what only he could do, which is the miraculous, to do, to do beyond what anybody could ask, hope, or imagine. And I know, because I know many of you, I know you have similar stories. It's, it's a story where, where you said, I came to a point where I said, okay, God, I surrender it all, big or little, it does not matter. I just surrendered it to you, and, and I said my first prayer. And then God began to answer the, that prayer. Or I said, I just showed up and I started serving and God began to, to just work and move in some miraculous ways. Or you took that big step and you said, okay, I'm going to start giving. And, and, and it doesn't have to be a lot. It doesn't really matter, that part. And all of a sudden, God begins to work. It was that, it's that idea of saying, God, I'm just going to trust you. Remember, this is a stewardship passage. God, I'm going to trust you with all of it. And when that happens, to see what God accomplishes is amazing. Can I just encourage all of us this morning? Don't talk yourself out of missing what God has for you. Don't talk yourself out of it. See, here's the right question. The right question is this. Lord, how do you want me to use your resources? And if we're very honest, this is very hard. You want to know why this is hard? It's your next fill in the blank. This is why this is hard. Because it's easier to give Jesus my sin than it is to give him my stuff. Isn't that true? Jesus, please take my sin. Jesus, please be my savior. And that's a beautiful thing and an important step. And we're celebrating baptisms in a couple weeks. We're going to be celebrating that. That's not downplaying that whatsoever. But here's what so often happens, is that we give our heart first, and the last thing to give is our wallet. That you can have my heart, but I'm going to hang on to this for a while, and it finally comes to a point, and it's just walking with Jesus enough to say again, am I going to trust him? Stewardship to where even with fear and trembling, you know, you just kind of hold up and say, okay, God, I guess you have lordship over this area of my life, too. I'm going to trust you with this, too. This is how it works. I don't I don't care what's in your lunch. I don't care in terms of if you open up your lunch box, if you've got a lot of resources, you have hardly any. If, if you've got steak or you've got two fish and five barlow, it does not matter. But for every single one of us, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, to come before him and say, you have Lord, right to be Lord of my heart and my life. Is that you are Lord of the universe. You already are Lord. I'm just going to make you Lord of my life. I'm going to trust you with this area of my life too. And I'll make a promise to you. When you do that, he will do again beyond anything you hope, imagine, or think he will do. You will find him multiplying your impact and that gift beyond anything you can imagine. Because that's who he is but we have to give first. We have to let go first and say, Lord, I choose to trust you. Who's Jesus? We visit this question every week. Jesus is, among other things, he is provider. Provider. He promises, I'll meet your needs. What does he want from our lives? He wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust him to lay it all down. To say, Lord, you are worthy of my trust. I'd like to invite the band to come up, if you would, please. And um, I just want to wrap up the passage. We've got one last verse kind of hanging out there. Look at verse 15 for me. Because the crowd, they've got full stomachs, and they're pretty inspired. Here's what it says. It says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force. By the way, that word, by force, what that means is to violently occupy. Like, imagine, like, duct tape. And then like throwing the trunk of a car kind of a thing. Like this is the force they're talking about. They want to make him king by force. But Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They wanted a political savior. He says, I'm not a political savior. They wanted somebody who would come and would, would, would free them from King Herod and from Rome. And Jesus says, no, I came to save you from your sins. They wanted Jesus to serve them. And Jesus said, that's not why I came. If you go back to verse 4, you'll see there it said that Jesus said it was near the time of the Jewish Passover when this event took place. And the Passover was a special time for the Jewish people, still is. It's a time where where the people would remember the Old Testament account where, where God delivered Israel out of slavery from the land of Egypt. And God came to the people on the eve when he was going to do this, and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a male lamb uh, without blemish, and I want you to sacrifice that lamb, and I want you to take some of the blood, I want you to put it on the door frames of the house. And when you do that, and when you're inside that house, when the angel of death comes, the angel of death will then pass over your house when it sees the blood. And it becomes, remember I talked about how everything in Scripture points back to Jesus, it becomes that symbol or that type, similarly with any of you, when you and I, when we receive Jesus... As our Lord and Savior, when his blood, as he is the sacrificial lamb, symbolically covers our heart and our life, then judgment passes over all of us. This is what they celebrated. And so Jesus is there on the Last Supper. And he's there with his disciples. And for hundreds of years, this Passover celebration has taken place. But it was always about Jesus. And Jesus is there with his people. And there he instituted a whole new covenant. He took the bread, and he took the cup. It says that the, the, the bread represents, is symbolic of my body, and the cup is symbolic of my, my blood, my life given for you. And whenever you partake of it, remember and give thanks for what he has done for every single one of us, going to the cross in our place. Remember, it's Jesus who is Savior, it's Jesus who is Comforter, and it's Jesus who is Provider. Provided all that you need. And so at this time, I wanna, the band's going to play in a moment. I want to invite you to come to the table and to grab the elements. Elders, if you would, come on up if you would, please. Uh, grab the bread and, and grab the juice and take it back with you to your, your seat. We're going to partake together. But, but as you do or when you do and you're there, I, I want to encourage you to take time. Take time to tell God thank you. Take God time to remember what he's done for you. And can I ask you to do a third thing? If there's anything in your life that you've been holding back from saying, God, I surrender this to you, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your pocketbook. Maybe it's your schedule. Maybe it's a circumstance in life. I don't know what it is, but you've just held on to it. And you've been trying, like Philip, to to crunch the numbers and solve the problem by yourself. But it's time to say, you know what? I'm going to trust you. It's time to surrender. This is a beautiful time to do that as you spend time with him. So as you come, when you're ready, you just come down the center aisle, grab the elements, and head back to your seat. You're now welcome to come to the table.